Welcome to the APM podcast. APM is the chartered body for the project profession. This special episode is guest hosted by Emma Ruth Arnaz Pemberton, chair of APM's PMO Specific Interest Group and director of consulting services at Wellington. She'll be in conversation with Catherine Lum of OpenReach. The fiber and network delivery PMO at OpenReach was the recipient of APM's 2022 PMO of the Year Award. The judges praised the PMO for working on relationships and on accessible ways to bring benefits, and also for generating joy through the work itself. Listen on to hear Catherine talk about how and why the PMO was established, the transformation journey it went on, and also why PMOs have something of an image problem and how to break the bias. Welcome to the latest APM podcast. I'm very happy to have with me Catherine Lum from OpenReach, the 2022 PMO of the Year and Programme of the Year Awards winner. Thank you for being here and congratulations, Catherine. Thank you, Emma. So let's start with the easy question first. Tell us a little bit about you uh, and your journey. Absolutely. Um, so as, as Emma said, I'm Catherine Lum or Catherine Bowstead for anyone who worked with me pre-marriage. Uh, I live just outside Leeds um, and I lead the Transformation PMO in one of OpenReach's uh, business units. Um, and I suppose my career has almost come full circle um, as I actually started my graduate scheme in a project control PMO support role. Um, and I kind of always say it's the sliding door moment of my whole life, Emma, was, was getting the graduate trainee position at a fabulous small consultancy company which specialised in systems integration called Syntegra. And, and on my first day, I kind of turned up with an incredible work ethic filled with common sense but my toolbox was empty. And, you know, kind of coming from the middle of nowhere, in Cumbria, pre-internet, I wasn't really particularly worldly, and I just really, really felt out of my depth. Um, But I very quickly found myself in a really great project team. You know, and after many years of boring jobs when a student at university, the role, um, you know, the role of being a project manager of PMO, it really, really, it lit a fire in me. Um, And then kind of followed lots of fabulous rotations, doing everything from PMO, project planning, risk management, taking actions, you know, kind of understanding the end-to-end project management lifecycle, delivery framework, lots of work in requirements, contract management, defects, technical service transitions, working in service operations. And I kind of put all those different bits of the jigsaw together um, and I kind of found myself eventually becoming um, a project manager. Um, And at that point, I basically spent all of my 20s finding the most demanding projects that I could, packing up my little suitcase, travelling all over the country, kind of living in hotels three or four nights a week. Um, So, yeah, I spent a lot of time in London working on an NHS IT contract, which was fantastic. Kind of jumped over to Belfast, got a bit of a first transformation experience on a civil service project. Then moved up to Newcastle, working with the government in Edinburgh and Glasgow on a big devolved um, systems integration project. Um, you know, if I'm really honest, Emma, I admit I worked too much, slept under my desk too often, <laughs> parted way too hard. Sorry, sorry, networked. Um, but it really kind of expedited my experience, which has kind of led to some pretty meaty program manager and program director roles, both on customer-facing projects, but more recently, um, moving into to transformation. So what attracted you to kind of come back through delivery and, and back into the PMO as an industry? It's, it's interesting. So I am absolutely a, a project manager by trade. Um, and about three years ago, I was kind of program managing a, a pretty meaty um, transformation program in my previous organisation. They actually approached me 
um, into leading their, we called it a TMO, a transformation management office, but you know, for, for all intents and purposes, it is a PMO. And, and I'll be honest, it, it, a lot of thinking went on. It was a really tough decision. Um, and if, if I'm really candid, I think that's because I feel, and I know a lot of my colleagues feel, there's, there's quite an industry-wide stigma surrounding PMOs sometimes. You know, we're kind of looked at as box tickers, as policemen. You know, and I spent much of my career navigating and avoiding some of these kind of low-value box ticking PMOs because, you know, I often didn't feel the value myself. And when this opportunity came along, I did quite a lot of ping-ponging and, and I kind of decided I could continue being frustrated. I could whinge, I could moan about the PMOs. Or actually, I could use this as an opportunity and do something about it. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I just knew that I could make a greater impact moving into PMO, evolving the model, the value. And I kind of came up with a vision that, you know, I really wanted to break the bias on the perception of PMOs. And... You know, obviously, Emma, like every PMO, you know, I wanted to ensure excellence in the delivery of our projects and our programmes. But to me, that's a given. But I do believe that a PMO can kind of set the tone for how the whole team operates. So I just wanted to smash those perceptions and, and, and do it a little bit differently. Um, you know, but that, that was a tough decision to make. It, it all kind of went through. But, you know, ev- every pathway isn't, isn't positive. And sadly... Within days of starting this new role, there was a, you know, the, the board level leadership changed, the business pivoted, the role kind of disappeared and became something very different to the one taken. Um, and although I learned lots of things in, the, in that year, um, you know, ultimately, I think the, the comment one uh, very trusted um, and generous colleague said to me was it was like putting Ronaldo in goals. It was just utterly the wrong fit for me. Um, so again, you know, I could kind of whinge on moan again, or I could just accept that it hadn't worked out as I hoped and do something about it. So two years ago, Emma found a PMO, senior manager role, advertising open reach, and I kind of decided to give it another go to, to find a place to, to meet my vision. Uh, went through interview and, and got the role. So yeah, that's how I ended up uh, leading a PMO. That's uh, really interesting. And I think Everybody that's listening that's worked in PMO will be able to relate to that stigma that still exists in some organizations and trying to find the balance of being the police, which is a legitimate part of our role, um, as well as kind of driving the future and innovating and, and doing all that other stuff. So I think that's it's interesting that you've experienced that as well. And I think, like I say, something that everybody will be able to definitely relate to if they've worked within or alongside a PMO for sure. So let's get a little bit more into the PMO itself. Tell us a little bit about OpenReach so we can understand a little bit of the context of where your PMO sits. No, absolutely. Context is everything. So OpenReach, I'm sure you'll have all heard about us and and seen the vans on the street, but we connect millions of UK customers to the wider world through our network. We provide more than 28 million consumers. We connect more than 5.6 million UK businesses. And and ultimately, the majority of the UK will be an open-reach customer. But you just might not know it because you'll consume our network through what we call a customer provider. So think about your internet provider like Sky, TalkTalk, BT. There's 800 of them that we work with as our customers. And our purpose in OpenReach is massive, you know, and sometimes it's a little bit dramatic ever, but, you know, I consider moments in history that, are, that have changed the world. You know, if you think about the Industrial Revolution or a little bit more recently, you know, moving from horses and carts to cars or from black and white TVs to colour TVs. You know, there's all these changes. And I think the revolution that we are living through now 
is the move to fibre. You know, many of us are, you know, now able to work from home thanks to new technology. But that, that was just unthinkable 10 years ago when we were all dialing into calls on a fixed line headset. You know, and all technology is continually demanding higher and more reliable bandwidths. So our mission in OpenReach is to roll out fibre to at least 25 million homes by 2026. And we're currently at 9 million, so we're, we're making pretty, pretty good progress. So that, that's kind of open reach. But if we kind of delve down into open reach, I work in, it's split into business units and I work in one of the biggest business units uh, called FND, Fibre Network Delivery. To kind of put a bit of scale to that, it's an operational team of over 12,000 led by a phenomenal and inspiring managing director, Matt Hemmings. And we're basically building and connecting our customers. And, and most of those, uh, you know, most of the 12,000 people are the engineers that you see out in the vans on the street. So if we kind of jump down into FND, the business unit, I then work in a subunit in there called Transformation and Change for an inc- equally inspiring um, and fantastic director called Zane Bowen. And we've got about 130 colleagues in our transformation team. They're mainly project managers, business change experts. And this team is responsible for transforming our business to be fit to serve and to meet that strategy. Um, and I fit within Zen's team, and one of my teams is the Transformation PMO. Wow, that's a huge undertaking, and very interested to see, you know, how you hit those amazing targets. Um, let's talk a little bit about your portfolio then within the PMO team. What what are the kinds of projects that tend to sit within your portfolio? Are they all about delivering fibre, or are you doing other stuff as well? No, definitely, definitely other stuff. Um, so. I suppose, again, to scale it, we've got at any one time up to 200 projects split across six programs in that portfolio. And most of those projects involve some kind of process, people and and often system changes. So imagine we're trying to schedule the work of, you know, over 10,000 engineers every day. That's really quite complex. So a lot of our projects are around scheduling that work more effectively, reducing travel time, serving our customers quicker. Uh, we've kind of dabbled into the, the world of data science and we've got some fantastically clever algorithms to identify those customers' orders that are most likely to fail based on history so we can intervene early to deliver for our customers. A lot of our projects are about automation, improving workflows so there's less touch points, less points of failure. You know, we really do try and focus on our customers. So at the moment, we're doing a lot of work to improve customer comms through a multitude of different channels. Um, and if you think about trying to roll out fibre to 25 million homes, you know, that is it's an insane infrastructure project. I think behind HS2, we're the second biggest infrastructure uh, programme in the country at the moment. We're always, you know, we're identifying like physical tooling. You know, there was a project the other day I came on my desk about jetters, right? I'm like, what, what's this? You know, th- these are things that can resolve blockages in the ground that typically, historically, we'd have had to dig up the road and put traffic management in place and all the frustration that comes with that. You know, we've got some fantastic technology that can blow the fibre through the pipes under the ground for many kilometres so we can build quicker. So it's it's, it's just such a fascinating business. And, you know, in in the last two years I've been here, it's it's kind of really, really blown me away um, what, what, what 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 we're doing, Emma. So, yeah, our team doesn't actually deliver the fibre we, we we deliver improved processes and ways so that the teams rolling out the fibre can do it more, more effectively and, and quicker that's really fascinating and mostly because most of us like you say are consuming this and have no idea what sits behind it it's really really interesting um 
in within our industry, it's widely accepted that PMOs are usually created to respond to a particular challenge or opportunity. What was the trigger for your PMO to be set up? No, absolutely right. Well, we can, we've seen the vision there, right? And why we have to be successful. Um, so, so my director, Zane, was a few months into his new role leading uh, transformation delivery when, when he advertised my role. And, and actually, there was an incumbent PMOMA when I joined the business with some really incredible people in it. He just hadn't fully decided what it wanted to be or fully defined the services it was it was gonna gonna offer. And it was kind of existing in, a, in an environment where, you know, it's I think we all know it's really, really hard to work without clear executive support, you know, where, where missions and objectives aren't fully defined. You know, and, and the team had some great frameworks and some great processes, but but they weren't embedded, they weren't being adopted and weren't being used, therefore the value wasn't being realized. You know, there were loads of governance events happening, but there was just such a huge opportunity to to drive more value from these. Um, you know, simple things. And I know every project, um, every business um, suffers from this, certainly the ones I've worked in. Sometimes it can even be as basic as it's really hard to identify one single list of all the projects that we're delivering across this massive business. You know, and if therefore, for example, Emma, someone said to me, want to know the dates on every project, that was impossible because every project delivered in its own way with its own life cycle, its own milestones, you know, and all buried in their own project plans. So you, you couldn't get that, that data and that insight to, to drive the decisions. Uh, you know, this was kind of leading to, you know, a, a bit of a history of projects being delivered late more often than we'd like, you know, and, and leading to disrupted operations. You know, we're transforming the way they work, but sometimes we were impacting that. Um, so, yeah, so every project manager, we've got some brilliant project managers, but they'd all, you know, like, like we all like to do if we put our project manager hats on. We like to deliver things in our own way, um, you know, without any frameworks, uh, you know, kind of work it out as you go along. But this is a complex business. You've got to work with over 15 teams on each project. And because that knowledge wasn't codified, you almost had to have been in OpenReach for a few years to learn how to deliver projects. So, you know, for me, when I got this job, it was just, you know, rather than that being overwhelming, which it could have been, it was actually just a really, really exciting opportunity um, and a great time to, to join uh, and get into work for Zane as well. Amazing. I love the concept of the tacit knowledge that sits within the business and how so many organizations don't take advantage of that. And it, it, it only becomes a problem or an opportunity when somebody leaves and that knowledge leaves with them. It's, uh, it's fascinating, the whole knowledge management piece. So to drive that then, what approach did you use to establish your PMO? Gosh, well, our journey from A to B is a project in itself. And if I'm honest, um, we ran it as a project as, as well. You, you kind of can't take the project manager out of me. So, you know, when I first started, uh, you know, we worked re I worked really hard to understand the business, to really understand the as-is, and, you know, started to carry out um, a maturity assessment as well. You know, we did lots of interviews, ran quite a lot of retros or lessons learned, um, you know, and, and, and that kind of led to, to basically deciding... What we, what we were going to be. What did this business need? You know, that every PMO needs to be entirely different and, and aligned to what that business and that company needs. So we kind of worked on what the services were we, we were going to offer as a PMO. You know, we, you kind of said at the start of the call as well that, um, you know, OpenReach were also really lucky to win. Well, not lucky, but, you know, it's it fantastic that we also won the, the programme of the year. Um and that's a, a partnership program with Accenture. So, you know, at that point, we, we were able to build on some great MVP work that we'd done on that major program with Accenture. And it, it, that really helped with the stakeholder support and buy-in as well, which, which is the key. So, you know, we agreed a vision. We agreed the services which work for this business. And then, then I split the execution into tranches. 
So, you know, we we prioritised, first of all, a delivery lifecycle framework with some gating controls. You know, we perfected some strong governance events and we had to improve our um, financial benefit management. Uh, it took a lot of time. You know, we didn't try and do everything. We picked those three things, but it, but it really started to work. You know, delivery improved, benefits were realised and we got that all-important stakeholder buy-in. But that was only on one of those six programmes, because I do believe, don't try and design something and then roll it out everywhere. Design something and pilot it, perfect it, and make sure it works. So um, so I suppose after that, we, we wanted to mature the PMO. So, you know, the value was proven on that one programme. The sponsorship from all those key stakeholders was in place. And we wanted to both widen and expand the PMO. So offer more services and also roll it out to more of, the, more of those programmes. Um, so a priority action was maturing our delivery lifecycle, codifying even more knowledge, Emma, in, into one place. You know, we introduced some strategic tooling at this point. We felt we were mature enough to introduce tooling to drive date control, enable reporting automation um, and, and, and bolster our risk management processes. This also meant us as a PMO team could do more with the same amount of people because we were automating a lot of the work. Um I think in parallel, at all times, I kept regularly reflecting on, on my, my perceptions of PMOs of old and the biggest frustrations that I had. And so in parallel, you know, we, we, we as a PMO team really focused on the culture in our team. You know, I want, I want this PMO to be there to champion success for all. So if, if a project fails, we have failed, right? We'll stand up there. We failed you. But if the project succeeds, they are celebrated. They get the praise, and it's it's really different behaviours to the to, to what the team had previously been used to working with. You know, I don't want finger pointing. I don't want to be trying to catch people out. I don't want to be like trying to prove people wrong. It, it's not about that. We're there to enable the success. And um, so, if you know, if you fail, we fail. If you succeed, well done you. You've done an awesome job. So, you know, again, that the cultural bit, I think, has been a, a big part of, of why we've, we've landed and, and been successful. So, you know, we piloted this full PMO offering across two programmes and we continue to reiterate it, right? We, we, it took an, another number of months to get it fully working. We ran a lot of feedback loops um, and, and I really tried to actively create a safe environment to tell us what, what wasn't working on the ground um, you know, we introduced a lot of gamification, trying to get people to adopt these new ways of working through fun little uh, competitions and prizes and things like that. And, and, you know, I spent a lot of my time traveling the country, actually doing really interactive training sessions, you know, to support the rollout. Because we can, you know, you need the PMO capability has to be at the level to adopt this and to be successful. So there's a lot of coaching and training and working with our fabulous PM teams as well at this point. So I suppose, you know, we started small, we matured it, and then it was all about scaling it, making sure that we, you know, once that the, not only the ways of working were tested and proven, actually the way that you successfully roll it out was proven through the challenges we'd had. Um, we, we scaled it to all six programmes across the, the full portfolio. So that's kind of where we find ourselves today. But, you know, if we kind of think that's the end of the story, um, you know, that, that then we'd be wrong because the job's never done, right? That the PMO adapts, it changes, and we must remain relevant and valuable. So, you know, we've, we've always got a roadmap. What's next? What's the next thing we want to introduce? What's the next thing we could, you know, make easier? So, yeah, lots of, um, lots of exciting work to get to this point. But, you know, we definitely look forward with, with what's next at all times as well to stay relevant.
It's a fascinating and really inspiring journey. And I think it will, will be really good for other PMO professionals to hear it. Um, I remember I was involved in designing the PMO award uh, with the APM. And one of the key things that we were really focusing in on is legacy. And I think that's one of the things that often gets missed is like when you move on to something new and shiny, what do you leave behind? Or is it something amazing? Or is it something that because you're driving it, it kind of starts to witter away over time? And I think that's really impressive. And one of the things that for me, it's really important that you've done and that's really focused on what do we need for now, but getting into that scalability and that evolution to kind of really leave a, a, a cultural legacy about what you guys are doing. So really well done for that. Now, embedding and sustaining a project is the hardest part of any project. It's no different. This is a project in itself, isn't it? I mean, you know, embedding this way of working, it has to embed and sustain um, you know, for, for, for the future. So no, I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Do, do you also find the question I get asked the most of all, I don't know if you do, Emma, but how do I start? Where do I start? What do I do? That That's kind of the most common question I, I get asked. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, the, I, I, I wrote something on LinkedIn not that long ago with, you know, a few different tips on these are the first things that you need to be doing. And, and for me, they include, firstly, know the organisation. You can't lift and shift a PMO. You need to understand exactly what you mentioned. What is the service? What are the services that are relevant, that are appropriate to your organizational reality? Also, know your strengths and your weaknesses within yourself and your team. We do tend to find that PMOs get set up by maybe one or two people. And it's because they're there and they're available a lot of the time. They don't necessarily have the experience in PMO. They have experience in delivery. And that can be really challenging because then we are setting something up because of our own experience and not really looking at our internal customers. You know, for me, the PMO is a service provider, just like IT. We have a bunch of internal customers. They consume our services. And I think that's that's really important. Uh, and that's where the legacy starts to come into play. It's much bigger than the process and the life cycle and the templates and the tools, which we need and are very tactical and, and absolutely add value. But it's taking it to that next level. I think that's what you guys have definitely managed to do. Um, now, you've, you've talked a little bit about people and, and the fantastic teams that you've worked with. People, for me, are the most important part of PMO. I always talk about a human first approach, you know, speak to the humans before you speak to the PMO people. So how do you manage the competency of your PMO team? How do you upskill, cross-skill and make sure that your guys are staying motivated and ahead of the curve? I'll be honest, our team is, is not typical of a PMO. We've got a real diverse team with a mix of skills and experiences. So um, some of the people in our PMO have delivered projects to customers internally and externally, which is great, right? They've been a project manager. Others have kind of seen the evolution of this PMO role in OpenReach over several years. You know, so they've been in PMO for quite some time. Some of our people are actually from operations, so they've come from the operational side of the business, and they might start with little or, or even no PMO experience, but they personally have first-hand knowledge of how our business works, and they also know how it feels to receive the changes that we roll out in our projects. So to me, they bring SME knowledge, which is just critical for, for us to be different you know, because they understand that perspective, it means we can really put the customers first. We can do better assurance, make better recommendations because we know the business more. Um, 
and, and, and my deputy Gareth said to me the other day, you know, we've built a really nice team, haven't we? And, and it sounds really cheesy to say it, uh, but it is certainly, genuinely, the happiest, most contented team that I've worked in. And, and it, it's been about finding the right mix of skills, but also personalities. And, and at the moment, you know, we're seeing an industry really, really high churn, you know, all, all over the place. But I, if I'm honest, I'm just, I'm actually proud that we've been stable for over a year now. You know, the team want to be here. They want to stay. They they know our purpose. They know how we fit in. They know why we're critical. Um, and, and I think at times PMOs teams don't always don't always feel that. So we, we have daily stand-ups where we have two groups of work that we go through. So one is what I call BAU um, and the other is, is Evolve. And let's be honest, people have a bias. Some people like to do the jobs where they know what they're doing, where they're turning the handle and they're running the reports and running the health checks and running the governments and chasing up actions. You know, so people really do have a bias and a preference. So, you know, some people prefer the BAU. Some people prefer working in the Evolve side. What's next? What's coming up next? What's the next new thing we need to do? What's the next bit of business assurance you want to introduce or make better? So we give people the opportunity to have a preference, but we do get everybody involved in both. So even those people that prefer to turn the handle are always learning new things and being challenged. And I think, you know, that, that brings a real satisfaction, I hope, to, to the team. Um, and I think we can't forget that we've, we've, we've operated. You know, when I started this job, we, we were in covid you know, I think we were probably a year into COVID at the time. You know, it was the ping pong of in the office, out of the office. And it's, it's been really tough to convince people to, to return to the office. You know, we do, we do operate a hybrid model here at Upperreach, which is, which is great and provides great flexibility. But, you know, you can't force people to come back into the office. So for me, it's about being trying to make it compelling so that people want to come back in. So when we do ever get together as a team, everyone just feels like they're buzzing, they're energised. And, and I think, you know, our learning and our progress really soars by working face-to-face. So I'm always trying to build on that momentum and, and use the enablers that, that we have as well. So, you know, like most corporate companies, we're, we're allowed a few volunteering days a year. So, you know, as a full team, we've got together doing footpath laying this last year or half the team a few months ago painted a food bank in Leeds. The other half did some gardening at Grenfell. You know, we've had a lot of fun nights out as well. Um, So I think we've just got a really nice environment and we, we try and do fun things together to build those connections as a team. But, you know, we do hold ourselves to, to, to very, very high standards. And I was asking my team, one of my team the other day to kind of reflect on this question and they just said... You know, no one ever takes anything personally. We all believe in continuous improvement and, and we just want to help each other. We do not want to bring each other down. It's just a really positive, uplifting culture in the team. But it took a long time, right, to, to get there and, and bring, it, bring in some, some, some people in. Yeah, so the, the people side, I think, is really important. And I think it's great that you've, you've really taken what's available to you, like you say, like the volunteering days. I know that that kind of work becomes really important to bring the team together and to be doing something different. So I, I organize every year a project management day of service where we get people from industry to come and give pro bono support for a day uh, to small to medium sized charities. And it, you know, it starts off as something nice to do and actually then very quickly becomes one of the most important thing that the team does is to actually give something back from our industry. Um, so it's a, I think that's a really, really good thing that you've done. And you've mentioned it briefly around, you know, what makes your PMO unique and different. And you talked about skill sets. Um, 
all PMOs are different. That's why I love my job. Every PMO I speak to is uh, is a different conversation. Outside of skill sets, is there anything else that you say you would you think would makes your PMO interesting, different, successful that people might be able to take away? I mean, you wouldn't believe it today with how much I'm talking, but I generally I'm a, there'll be a lot of people smirk now when I say this, that, that know me, but I'm a real fan of succinctness and brevity. You know, we, we are often surrounded by people who make things complex, say a thousand words when 50 would do, and kind of cause confusion or distraction with too much detail. And, and our goal as a team is to always be simple and straightforward. And I think, you know, I want us to be trusted. If we say we'll do something, we always do it. And to me, Emma, like, we have a monster action tracker in the team from every meeting, every piece of governance, every action we ever get as a team goes in that tracker. So, you know, we make sure we follow through on everything to make sure that we build that trust. And that, that's made a big difference because often you sit in events, people say they'll do something, you never hear from them again. We'll always go back and make sure that, that we do it. Um, I think our intranet is kind of a real amazing tool that we've introduced. We kind of get thousands of hits a month. It sounds really obvious, but it, it just it just has everything in one place. Really clear guidance for everybody to support the successful delivery of, of our transformation agenda. Um, I think the main difference, though, is our why. Why, why, you know, it's the why. We really try never to tell anyone to do something. We spend time explaining the why. And this, is, this has actually been a huge focus on the team's development as well, on that culture. In fact, we had a whole two-day workshop dedicated to why. Well, maybe if I try and bring it to life with a couple of examples. So, you know, within... We have to govern many business assurance activities. So we're a really highly regulated industry and that brings lots of checks. You know, we're heavily unionised. We need lots of union engagement. But, you know, a real critical area, a critical assurance area for us is safety. Safety first every time in this business. And if you think about it, every single change, every single project we deliver has the potential to impact the safety of our colleagues. So historically, every project would engage the health and safety team contacts themselves so imagine 200 projects doing this ad hoc. You know, it was an industry in itself. So, you know, a really, really basic thing we've done, but we just centrally govern and funnel all projects into the right kind of, you know, health and safety forum at the right time. And you, you reuse one of your existing artefacts and you pop along for two minutes. There's no work, no prep. Bring something you already have and just pop into this meeting for two minutes and get the tick in the box. Because if your project does something that injures someone... Just, just imagine that, guys, right? Imagine the impact. So we just literally, as they're all, you know, say, well, I don't have time. Why do I need to do this? We try and explain if they don't do this, what could happen? And all we want is two minutes and we've really made it as easy as we possibly can. Um, the other thing we get a lot of pushback in, why did, you know, when we first introduced it, why do we have to use this system to put my status updates in? Guys, give us four bits of information once a week. We'll reuse that in three different governance events. You don't have to go into three PowerPoint decks. You can... You know, leave us to do all the donkey work and that gives you more time to deliver, not be preparing governance events. So it's 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 all about the why and, try, and, you know, we've tried to design things to be as streamlined as possible as well. So everything is don't do this. You know, if there's any pushback, it's just give me a couple of minutes. Let me just explain why this matters. And and people don't always agree, right? And, and genuinely we listen. So we've got a feedback loop on every email, on every template. And actually, I sometimes go out, I don't know why, but, you know, actively trying to find things to improve even further. So I do, you know, run quite a lot of retros across the programs, gather feedback. 
And if something goes wrong or a project fails or something didn't happen as it should, we'll get to the root cause. And then we codify that learning into our framework and our templates immediately. So, so we learn from that so that every other project coming up behind a standards has it built into their framework. That, that takes real discipline um, to do that. But, you know, we set, we set the standards high. We do what we say we will. And I think that's kind of built the, the respect and the trust. And then, you know, kind of come back to if they fail, we failed. If they succeed, they get the praise. So, um, so yeah, it's about the why and about listening. Yeah, amazing. I spend a lot of time talking to people about why, <laughs> uh, because if you can't articulate it, no one else is going to be able to articulate it out and or understand why you're there. So I think that's really important. And, and, you know, value and perception are so important in that. And, you know, we always say beauty or value is in the eye of the beholder. What do you think are the benefits that your customers perceive from your PMO into the organization? How do you change their day to day? So, yes, our, our PMO has helped us be more predictable in the delivery of our projects and programmes, you know, and, and I, I'm a massive fan of tangibly measuring these outcomes as well. So, you know, our on-time delivery has dramatically improved over the last year. Um, we run project health scores, and these are trending in the right direction. But again, this actually isn't to call out underperformance. It's actually, if I'm honest, to identify those project managers who might need extra support and coaching. So it's a, you know, it's, it's got a dual purpose as, as those kind of scores to, to help people, but make sure that our projects are healthier than, than what they were. Um, as a business, as every business, we've got to reduce our cost base, both for our longevity, but also to invest back into that once in a generational transformation that we're leading to go full fibre. So benefits management you know, cost control is a big part of, our, of, of, of how we measure our success. And last year, we exceeded our target by, by 15%, which was, you know, I can't go into numbers, but it was a phenomenal amount of reduction in the cost base. And I think, to me, people only go to governance consistently if it's good. I don't know how many meetings in my diary I, I don't go to anymore because it's just not good governance, not good use of my time, isn't driving value. And, and I think the most, you know, we have a lot of, of governance, but our most valuable part of our governance is our gating um, board. You know, people come to that consistently because, you know, we've codified years of knowledge into a framework and all we're doing is making sure the right deliverables have been created at the right time, that the right people have reviewed and approved them so that we're engaging our stakeholders. We go through all of the learning from recent projects and make sure we're not making the same um, mistakes or anything that went particularly well that we're building that learning in. And we make sure that because every single matrix team attends, that every project has all the people they need to, to deliver the next phase. It all sounds really common sense, but if you get to the root cause of why projects go wrong, it's because we're not engaging the right stakeholders at the right time, or we're missing just one or two important people out, or we're not interlocking with the teams that deliver the projects. So, you know, our gating boards um, are, are probably, you know, the fact everyone comes to them and, and that is the big event of the week is, is something I'm really proud about. And, you know, um, Alex Gray, someone I, I, I admire hugely, recently dropped a note to the team saying it was the best gating he'd ever seen, which was, you know, just, just a... Uh, phenomenal so yeah and, and I hope if I'm honest that the two APM awards as well um, you know show that we're doing something right but for me why that is important is we have I want us to attract talent into the team because at the end of the day it's about people 
Um, you know, so if people can kind of get excited and, and see how we work and want to join our team, uh, that, that for me is, is great as well. That's really all sounds brilliantly positive. Um, what about challenges, though? Let's flip the coin. What are the main challenges that your PMO faces? Oh, we can always focus on the positive, can't we, and where we got to. But goodness me, this has been a journey. I have a few more grey hairs than I did two years ago when I (laughs) took this job. And I think the challenges that we faced are no different to the ones that any other PMO faces when I speak to to colleagues from other businesses. But, you know, the first one was that PMO policeman, right? It's really, really tough to to change the behaviours of some of the incumbent PMO colleagues it was about demoing the behaviors and for me it was actually about being vulnerable and and showing them that if something did fail there was no kind of comeback on them you know and and really try to build trust in the team and and by showing the value by doing things differently I'll be honest you know most people jumped on board um and then it was all about a mix of headhunting so some people I've worked with in previous businesses uh, chose to come and join me which is just phenomenal when people kind of choose to come and work with you again you know, we did rotate some colleagues um, and we, we did a lot of coaching, but that's led us to that collaborative, helpful value adding team that, that you know, has helped the business be, be successful. Um, and I think the what's are often easy in the PMO and Emma, we keep saying it, but it's how you do it. That's the key here. So, so the first one was changing the behaviours of, of, of the PMO. But outside of the team, you know, and I was going around the country, working with the project managers for me, I actually just told my story. So, you know, I'd stand up in the room, I'd go, I've been you. You know, I resonated with them about those perceptions and the challenges that they had. And I kind of told them that I I needed their help to build something that's different and, and to build a culture where the PMO shows vulnerability and creates a safe space for feedback. You know, again, you fail, we fail, you succeed, well done. So, it was, it was all about um, getting the trust and the respect of the project managers and building those relationships at all levels from the, you know, the programme directors right down to the, the more junior project managers we've had. So, you know, I know all of them, um, spent time with all of them and, and resonated with them that I hope has, has helped to build that trust. Um, I think the next challenge we had uh, is the matrix organisation we work in. So anyone here working for a big company will, 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 will also operate in a complex matrix team. You know, we've got IT teams, data, HR, operations themselves, change teams, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those teams need to come together at the right time on every project. So if I give you an idea of the scale of the challenge, 15 different matrix teams all need to come together at the right point on 200 projects. That's 3,000 individual engagements, all happening independently. So we worked with every single team to contract on their services. What could we expect from them as standard? And kind of agreed best practice templates. And we streamlined and agreed, you know, engagement mechanics, you know, front doors. Um, And finally, we then built that into our delivery framework to give really clear guidance and assurance that that was happening. So, you know, really trying to give give the PMs time to manage the projects, not trying to work out who should do this bit, who should do that bit. How do I get in touch with them? Well, is that good? Is that what good looks like? I've got no idea. I've never worked with them before. So a lot of our effort went into the matrix organisation and getting all of that contracted and, and stood up. So that, that was another challenge and definitely an area, I think, you know, bigger businesses you need to focus on or you won't be successful. I think 
we can't pretend, right, that change reluctance or we call it change fatigue. You know, we're not transforming a stable business, but one that's transforming and growing rapidly. And there's a lot of change hitting the teams. So the teams are out there trying to do their day jobs, trying to serve our customers fantastically. And, and, and you know, we got feedback that they would feel like every week or every day there was another change coming. And it kind of led to fatigue. Um, so, you know, we've had to do a lot of work to prioritise and, and group our new ways of working or mature our release cycles. So we don't drop to them every day or every week. We maybe drop to them less frequently, but in a more controlled way. So they're actually ready to consume and absorb it, be properly trained, you know, in different things at the same time so they can work in those new ways. So, you know, we often forget ops and forget how it feels to be constantly receiving change. So so we really pivoted and, and focused on that. I think if I didn't bring this one up, it would be, it wouldn't be good. But this is something I know that all PMOs uh, struggle with. It will only work if our project managers adopt the new ways of working. You know, and our project managers are so busy delivering projects that at times, you know, they were almost quite reluctant themselves to to receive that change. You know, I don't need to work to a standardised way of working. Don't need you to give me these new templates. I know what I'm doing. Um, that was a pretty tough one to crack. And if I kind of fast forward through lots of different solutions and attempts, we, we ultimately brought those stakeholders into our gold user group. We didn't create a framework and give it to them. The, these uh, gold users were empowered to co-create the framework with us. So they, they then helped us test it. They helped us improve it. And then they became coaches for our less experienced PM. So actually they felt they owned it. They felt it was their framework helping them do a better job, not something that PMO was making them use. So, you know, I'd always really champion co-creating. And and sometimes those people that are very loud or very obnoxious or the the ones that are the real blockers, get them inside, find a way to bring them on the inside and, and put them in those user groups if you can. Because then they'll be loud on shouting about what you're doing as well and, and getting that that buy-in. No one destroys what one helps to build. <laughs> there we go. There we go. And and I think this was my, my last one because I could go on all day. But it's for me, it's about the hero mentality. I don't know about um, other people, but in all the businesses I've worked in, I, I find that some people... F- thrive on chaos people love saving the day they love it when something goes wrong you know because they can fix it and sometimes as businesses we we reward those heroes who save the day we put them on a pedestal you know we say oh my god you've done amazing you've solved this massive problem and that is brilliant we need those people in every business but actually sometimes I think we forget to focus on the teams who are just doing the right thing every time so it doesn't go wrong and doesn't need fixing Now, behavioural change is really tough, but really we've tried to pivot to celebrating the successes of people doing the right thing every time, not focusing on the heroes after something has broken. And it's that that switch from reacting to things to being proactive. So that's, that's a big one that, you know, hopefully gives people a bit of food for thought to see if that's something that they do in their businesses. But who are those silent people just doing it perfectly every time? We shout them out. Yeah, that's really cool. And um, on on all kind of professional social media, uh, my my name, if you like, is PMO Ninjas. And I've always said that, that a good PMO actually is like a ninja sitting in the background, playing in the shadows, making everybody else look good. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, I can totally relate to that. Uh, that and and for me, that's one of the that's one of the switches that I've seen in the industry from PMOs kind of sitting in their ivory tower saying I'm the PMO, so people will do what I say, to that much more of a servant leader approach and kind of being more willing to sit in the background and make sure that we're enabling everything else to happen around us and not feel like we have to get the praise every time. Uh, I think that that's definitely an industry shift that I've seen since I've been involved. Um, so having said all of that, uh, what advice do you have for PMOs if they want to remain current? People that might be listening to this might be like, oh, that all sounds great, but I'd like some uh, practical advice, please. <laughs> what would your advice be? Ooh, maybe not the advice you're expecting, but um, this is advice um, that I've given myself recently. So, you know, winning the APM of the Year Award has actually really made me wake up, if I'm honest. Um, you know, sometimes I sit within a bit of an internal cocoon of open reach, and before that, you know, in, in my last transformation role. And, and I stopped working with external customers three or four years ago. Um, and actually winning the award, it's opened up so many doors. So this interview, Emma, speaking to you, you know, the, the House of PMO conference um, that I'm going to do and, and, and your, your Wellington conference later in the year, um, you know, I've received a few networking invites and online courses I've been asked to go on or to come to talk to people. Um, and I actually met 15 PMO colleagues from other companies on a, on a P3PO training course last week. And every one of these engagements has, has, has taught me something. And it's given me ideas or food for thought. So rather than like my roadmap is what I think we need to do next, um, by networking, it's given me so many more ideas. I, I don't even have time to kind of collect them and think what I'm going to do with them. But for me, it's all about networking, listening to other people, talking to other people um, and, and, you know, not thinking I know I know everything. Um, so, yeah, my advice, honestly, is to network. There's a world opened up for me I did not know was there in, in PMO. Um, and, and it's just, it's just been brilliant. There just isn't enough days in hours in the day to, to, to get involved with everything that I'd like to. So yeah, just network. I think just share experiences. That's how you learn best. We're back to that work-life balance <laughs> right from the start. We've gone all the way around. <laughs> um, so last question, if you had a time machine and you could go back in time and give yourself some advice before you started your PMO journey, what would that advice be? I think if we peel back the layers of the onion, ultimately, it all boils down to sponsorship. Doesn't matter how great you are, what you do, a good sponsor will make or break whether you are successful. And, and to me, there's a, a little bit about gut feel involved with this. Um, I think we can often be driven um, by people's words. But to me, words tell you what they want you to think and actions tell you what they actually think. So take the time, ask around and find the right fit for you and where you think you could make the biggest difference and therefore be the happiest. So spend time making sure that you've got that sponsorship um, before you take any, any new role. I think, I think the second bit of advice I'd give myself, and if I'm honest, I probably need to do this a little bit more because I think when we introduced ourselves to each other, Emma, we both said, oh, I'm a project manager, well, I'm a project manager. Like, I should be a little bit more proud to be PMO because if I don't champion what we do, no one else will. So, you know, I think in our job, we're often focused on the negatives, the things that have gone wrong, and we can apply that to, to ourselves sometimes and, and say, oh, we're not good enough, we need to be better. But no, I think we should try and be really, really proud to be a PMO, to be a PMO ninja. 
as you call it, Emma, and, and champion ourselves so that then we help to change the perception. Otherwise, we're never going to do that. But ultimately, to look after yourself, you need to get a good mentor. You need to get a good um, support network. Surround yourself with brilliant coaches. This is not the easiest job. You need resilience, right? And, and I, I, I'm good at what I do because I care. But when you care about something, it can be really, really hard to take the knocks, you know, and I really personally struggle with this. And and that support I've got, I've got two brilliant mentors, a couple of coaches, and I'm just surrounded by phenomenal people I've worked with over the years. That support keeps me going. So then I can, can in turn keep my team going. So always surround yourself with with good people um, to, to, so that so that you can then look after your team and be successful. I think that's that is amazing advice that if we could all go back in time uh, would serve most of us at some point in our careers for sure. Um, well, one last thing to say, and that's thank you, Catherine, for taking the time to support the PMO SIG and the APM podcast, helping us reach out to our members so they're able to really learn from your experience, relate to the reality of PMO, the good, the bad, uh, the ugly, uh, as well as the amazing wins that you guys have had. So uh, to finish off, I will say if you want to know more about the PMO specific interest group, you can search for APM PMO SIG on the web, on LinkedIn or on Twitter, or you can contact me directly by searching for PMO Ninjas. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Emma, Ruth and Catherine for taking time out to join the APM podcast for this discussion. And thanks to you for listening. For more information on OpenReach's PMO, look out for the spring edition of APM's project journal, out in March, which includes a feature on project professionals as changemakers. If you've got any comments, feedback or suggestions, please do get in touch. If you're listening on Spotify, scroll down on your device now to answer our listener poll where we ask what kind of content you would like to see more of on the APM podcast. The poll is open till the end of February 2023. If you're not listening on Spotify, you can still get in touch. Email apmpodcast at thinkpublishing.co.uk with your feedback. We're particularly keen to know what kind of content you want us to cover in 2023. Whether that's career development tips, more interviews with inspiring project leaders, or something else entirely. This podcast has been brought to you by APM. For more information, visit apm.org.uk.